the gospel that reclaims culture, post-Christian culture. I uh, detected this a couple weeks ago. I'd read years ago a quote by the American theologian Carl Henry, and it's so arresting, I wanted to begin with it. He said, our century, now he was writing in the 80s, but he said, our century is the first in Western history that has sought to build human culture on the premise of the irrelevance of God. Uh, Just as theological heresies force the church to refine and clarify its doctrine, so cultural apostasy forces Christianity to refine and clarify its message. Think about that for a moment. God's truth is unchanged and unchanging. But our precise understanding of the truth and our precise articulation of the truth in its depth and fullness must be suited to the times in which we live. I'm talking a little louder because I've asked for the window to be open so that I won't melt up here. That's the only reason I'm shouting. Is that okay? Talking a little louder. Okay. I'm not shouting at you. So, uh, The early patristic church, for example, understood that Jesus was God. But it took the heresy of Arianism to force our forefathers to clarify and refine in what precise sense he was God. Well, in the same way, we might understand the gospel. But the hostile worldviews that surround us today force us to think more deeply about the gospel and ask if we have grasped the biblical gospel as fully as God intended. In my view, we often have not. Now, we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. You hear that language a lot. Uh, That expression, I think, if it's not further understood, can be misleading. As somebody noted, since Jesus Christ sits enthroned, There can never truly be a post-Christian culture because Jesus is on the throne. He's Lord of all things. And in good time, he'll vanquish all of his cultural foes and exhibit his reign, of course, in all the earth. I'm using the term in a different way, however. I mean that Western culture, one, was Christianized, two, has traveled through Christendom. I apparently was speaking so loudly, I just knocked the door shut. So... I mean by a post-Christian that Western culture, one, was Christianized. Number two, it's traveled through Christendom. And we, three, have come out on the other side as post-Christianity. So I'm just saying the West has experienced pre-Christian culture, the ancient Greco-Roman paganism in the West, we would say, Christian culture in the medieval and Reformation world, and then now, third phase, third step, the post-Christian culture. Now, there's no precedent, therefore, for today's historical situation. Did you get that? This means there's never been a time when the church was forced to preach the gospel in a situation like ours. Now, some people say, no, that isn't true. We're sort of like the early Christians, the primitive church in Rome. Not really. Rome was never Christianized. Think about it for a moment. We are living in a culture that has been Christianized. Britain has an amazing Christian heritage, much longer than my own country. That's basically where we got it. What an amazing Christian heritage Britain has. And now it's almost all gone. There's never been a situation historically in which the gospel is preached in that kind of culture. Think about that for a minute. Now, I'd like to explore that for a moment. A a striking angle from which we can ponder this unprecedented situation is considering a perhaps the most popular evangelical of the 20th century, one of the most popular Christians of all time, 
the ministry of the 20th century evangelist from my own country, Billy Graham. Uh, he, his stadium-filling evangelistic crusades were a success, not only in the U.S., but as many of you know, also here at huge London crusades. His message was a basic, simple gospel. It was true. We've all sinned. Our sin provokes God's righteousness, eternal judgment in hell. But God loved us. He sent His own Son to die on the cross in our place. If we trust in Him alone, He'll avert His judgment and save us and make us His people eternally because His Son has substituted on the cross. Now that's the simple message of Graham's, and it is, of course, the heart of the biblical gospel. It was dramatically successful in many cases. On closer inspection, however, the gospel's not quite as simple as it might first appear. But we're only now sort of figuring that out. The gospel only seems simple to people who already agree on its underlying assumptions. That's easy to prove. It assumes certain momentous truths about the universe. And these are truths that Graham's listeners took for granted, even if they refused to accept or hadn't yet accepted his message. What are those truths? Well, first, there's an almighty, righteous, and loving God. That's a big assumption. He created all things. Another big assumption. He holds man responsible for his actions. This God does. He's not an impersonal God. Those actions include man's sin. Oh, is that true too? Yes. Man is a sinner breaking God's law. Next, this God will and must judge man for his sin. And next, God had a son, Jesus, whom he sent to die in substitution for the sins of the world. <coughs> Next, the only way of salvation is to trust in Jesus Christ. No other way to escape God's judgment than through Jesus Christ. Now, if you will think about it, these are massive assumptions about the universe. It's these assumptions that have changed. And if Billy Graham were launching his campaign today, his ministry today, he couldn't simply take for granted that his listeners would make these assumptions, even if they didn't accept all of them. I don't know how many of you have read Callum Brown's book, The Death of Christian Britain. It came out a number of years ago. I'm not done with it yet. Um, he argues against the popular secularization theory that Britain was de-Christianized as a result of 18th and 19th century urbanization and the Industrial Revolution. He presents evidence from the lives and habits of everyday Britons that it wasn't really until the 60s that the decisive shift away from Christian culture began. He even dated it to 1963. I don't know how he did that, but apparently 1963. Before 1963, there was something of a Christian Britain, and not so after 63. I think that's cutting it too close, but there it is. So the Londoners, however, who first heard Billy Graham were still suffused with Christianity, even many of them not being existentially Christian. Graham and his listeners did share certain Christian presuppositions about the universe. Now that's no longer true. And that's what I want you to understand today. Those assumptions are no longer taken for granted. Masses no longer believe in the God of the Bible. At most they believe in the therapeutic God who exists to meet their felt needs and their dreams and their goals. Others have adopted the pagan, the neo-pagan view of deity. The deity is a spirituality in which all of us participate. And then, of course, God certainly doesn't judge his people according to his law. God's either aloof somewhere, disconnected from the universe, or else he just puts his imprimatur on man's best ambitions and intentions, the grandfatherly God. God supports the progressive agenda of radical liberalism, especially sexual liberation. 
Man's not a sinner, of course, because the God of judgment is an outmoded deity, sin's an outmoded concept. There's no right and wrong. There are only moral perspectives. This, of course, is multicultural relativism. We each choose our own morality, and we have no right to impose that morality on other people. This uh, cultural obsolescence of sin, that there's no sin, was really brought home to me when I first started using voice recognition. How many of you use voice recognition in your, some of your computer programs? You know what I'm talking about. If you have an iPhone, you probably can speak words in there. Well, this was fascinating. This is just remarkable. Um, <clears throat> I was sort of speaking along, and I used the word sin, and guess what? My voice recognition program, a very prominent one, doesn't recognize the word sin. I really thought, well, it's a matter of lack of clarity and articulation. And so I said sin. And then I shouted with frustration into the microphone, sin. I couldn't get my software to recognize the word sin. It came out as since or same or sam but not sin. And then the thought struck me. Sin simply isn't a part of the software designer's assumptions about the universe. It's not a part of their lexicon. They assumed it wasn't in their customer's lexicon either. It simply could be scrapped digitally. Now, what Graham's listeners assumed, what almost everyone in the West assumed for 1,500 years, <coughs> was what I would like to call <coughs> the Christian cosmology. Even if they didn't affirm Christianity, they understood the Christian cosmology. It was a part of their intellectual or the intellectual milieu, the intellectual situation, the air we breathe. Now, let me stop for a minute and define what I mean by cosmology. We generally mean the study of the origin and structure of the universe, and that's certainly a denotation of cosmology. But more specifically, I mean the structure of the universe itself. The origin and structure and laws and future of the universe is its cosmology. Cosmology manifests creational norms, how God intends for his universe to operate. Now, these include everything from physical laws, physical laws like gravity and electromagnetics, to moral laws like those governing language, sex, and wealth. Now, you might have noticed that I haven't employed the word worldview until now. There's a reason for this. I wanted to contrast worldview with cosmology. A worldview is how we view the world. It is subjective. Each of us is inescapably embracing a worldview. There's the adage, worldviews are like pancreases. Everybody has one, even if you don't know it or think about it. But cosmology, as I'm using it, is the actual structure of the universe. It's not subjective. It's objective. It's what's out there. The goal of worldviews should be to conform as far as possible to cosmology. Think about that. That's why from here on I'll mostly be using the word cosmos, as in cosmo cosmology, rather than universe, because it better connotes the orderly world as God created it. The universe might be thought impersonal, but the cosmos is what it is because God made it and sustains it that way. I'm going to talk about the gospel today briefly. When Billy Graham preached, it wasn't necessary for him to elaborate on his cosmology. 
this Christian cosmology. He didn't have to. It was the inherited truth of Western Christendom. It was the inherited truth of Western Christendom. His audience still assumed that cosmology, even if they didn't trust Jesus Christ as, salva- as their personal Savior. Now, here's the point. We can no longer make that assumption in the West. And that's why we must constantly return to Genesis 1 and 2 and the Christian cosmology in preaching the gospel. Because if we neglect the Christian cosmology, if we assume that our hearers can persist in an anti-Christian cosmology and still be Christians, we're not preaching the gospel. How is that possible? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to show you how it's possible. Um, what specifically is the Christian? I'm now in the section, the Christian cosmology. What specifically is the Christian cosmology disclosed in Genesis 1 and 2 that communicates the gospel? And why must we preach the, gospel, the Christian cosmology today to preach the gospel? And how was Christian concern, your ministry, <laughs> preaching the gospel every day? I'd like us to go down, I'm going to skip, I think, the creator-creature distinction. Again, I'll send you the text of this. And I'd like us to get to the uh, male-female distinction. This is, the reason I'm bringing this up is particularly with the issue of same-sex marriage. <coughs> this is one of the great pressing issues of our time. Uh, Christian, theo- Christian cosmology necessitates the male-female distinction as does the gospel. You say, well, I've never quite heard it that way before. How does the gospel necessitate the male-female distinction? If this sounds strange to us, if we think that the gospel has nothing to do with the differences between men and women, and that whatever our views of the two sexes are, we can still be good Christians, we haven't been reading the Bible carefully. This male-female distinction is part of what it means to be human. Recall those momentous words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is no imaging of God without man and woman. I think about that. If there are a world of only men... Well, for one thing, that I'll be dead because you need women to make more people. But if there were a world only of men somehow, that would not be a full reflection of the image of God. Or a world only of women, that would not be a reflection of the full image of God. We need both. Men and women are God's image. To be male or female created in God's image is to be human, reflected in the other sex, male or female. To attempt some other gender is to seek to be other and less than human. This distinctiveness is truly a part of cosmological diversity. You ever notice the intentional diversity in creation in Genesis 1? Have you ever noticed in reading Genesis 1 the remarkable divine diversity? God is diverse from creation. That's the creator-creature distinction. The light is diverse from the darkness. The land is diverse from the sea. The creation days are diverse from one another. The heavenly bodies are diverse from the earthly bodies. The sea animals are diverse from the land animals and the flying animals. 
Man is diverse from all the animals. And man and woman are diverse from one another, though both made in God's image. Now, it's very ironic that we live in an age that prizes a cosmology of diversity, but is madly committed to egalitarianism, though these views are clearly irreconcilable. Actually, God's is the diverse cosmology. Sinful man's diversity is actually a bland uniformity in which all are herded into a state and forced mold. Women no longer can rejoice in their God-given femininity and sexuality, cherished and protected by masculine men who sacrifice themselves and their lives for their wives. The beauty of diversity within God's image, the beauty of sexual complementarity is uh, designed by God to be unsurpassed in the various diversities of human life. What beautiful complementary diversity there is in males and females, man and woman, both made in the image of God and both, re both reflecting His image. What glorious diversity that is. But what has this creational cosmological diversity to do with the gospel. Can't we preach the gospel without any consideration of male and female distinction? Can't we? Actually, we can't. For one thing, we read in Ephesians 5 of the great mystery of Christ and the church, rather, and her Lord, and Paul gives it an unforgettable parallel. And what is that metaphorical parallel? Marriage, the relation of a husband to a wife. Jesus is to his church as the husband is to his wife. The wife submits to the husband as the church submits to her Lord. And the husband cherishes and sacrifices his life for the wife as Christ did for the church. This means that at the fall, God determined to pattern the gospel after the creational cosmology. God determined to pattern the gospel after the creational cosmology. If we say then that we want the gospel to include homosexual marriage, we've utterly undermined the cosmological pattern. Think of this. Jesus doesn't love and treat the church as a man does another man. Not even as he would in a legitimate male friendship. Now think about that. Male, legitimate male friendships can be very powerful and good and necessary. But God didn't design to pattern the relationship of Christ to the church on that strong, legitimate male-to-male, or female-to-female friendship, but rather on marriage, as a man loves and treats a woman, as she lovingly submits to her husband. And then we consider progeny, right? Within the cultural mandate, God charged man and woman to propagate the race. The man becomes the father and the woman the mother. Indeed, Eve even means mother of all living this propagation through loving sexual intercourse is woven into the cosmology of the universe. Which is to say, and I would like you to think through the implications of this, homosexuality and other forms of sexual perversion are an assault on cosmology. They're an assault on the structure of the universe. And this has everything to do with the gospel. The chief way that God depicts himself in the Bible is as father. Not the only way, but the chief way. He is the father of the son in a unique sense. That's called the eternal generation of the son. Now, he is the father um, generally, providentially, of all humanity. 
But he's the father redemptively only of all of, of those who trust in Jesus Christ. If you've read the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus consistently, consistently exalts his father. He ex- submits to his father. He relies on his father. He prays to his father. He points others to his father. But think with me. Fatherhood presupposes the cosmological male-female distinction. Of course, this doesn't mean that the eternal Son of God was birthed by an eternal mother. No, by Mary for sure. But it does mean that fatherhood is woven into the cosmos, as motherhood is. And it means that you can't have the gospel without God's fatherhood. You can't have the gospel. Jesus tells us that he came to bring us to whom? The Father so that we could all be an eternal family, believers, that is. But if we turn our backs on Christian cosmology, if we say that children are just fine with two mothers or with a group of males and females without a father, if we make war on, quote, the patriarchy, we make war on the gospel because God is the original patriarch. The gospel brings us into God's family, and that family is fathered by God. Now, this is why consistent radical feminists must eventually deny the Bible. There is, of course, a biblical form of feminism, the exaltation of women. I would suggest that the greatest exaltation of women properly understood you will find is in biblical Christianity. It establishes laws by which women must be treated and exalted. Say, jokingly, some people say, well, you guys that believe like you do believe that Men are better than women. No, actually, we believe that women are a lot better than men. We really do. We just think we actually believe that in two or three things, men are better than women, and women are better than men in about 700 things. That's essentially what we believe. The Bible rightly understood in giving us glorious truths of femininity and motherhood is a patriarchal book. A book. Now, God does exhibit feminine traits at times, like all good fathers do, but he is named. He is named a father, not a mother. He provides for his children materially as a father does. He disciplines them as a father does. He is constant and not capricious as a good father. Now that's the father to whom the gospel introduces us. The gospel message of Billy Graham could take this paternal cosmology for granted because his audience took it for granted. We at Christian Concern can't make that assumption today. Our audience does not take that for granted. To preach the gospel in today's egalitarian climate, hostile to fathers, hostile to men, hostile to godly women, to preach that gospel, we must preach the paternalism of cosmology. We must preach that God is a father. His son is bringing us into his family. We must preach the patriarchy. Further, we must preach that God ordinarily brings us into redeemed human families. Loving, sacrificial, strong, holy fathers and loving, nourishing, submissive mothers and loving, obedient children. As well as God-fearing grandparents and aunts and uncles and other Christian relatives. I love the Puritan aphorism. God casts the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. Which would be a blessing to those of you here that are Married or will be married one day. What a great glorious promise that encapsulates. God doesn't just redeem individuals. He redeems families. That's to say that the gospel saves families, not just individuals as such. 
But if you don't believe in the cosmological family, if you redefine the family or you trash it all together, you can't understand or believe the gospel because the gospel brings us into a family. The gospel is a family fact. And without a family, there can be no gospel. So, the male-female distinction is a vital part of the Christian cosmology. For hundreds of years amid Christian culture in the West, that cosmology was a supposition that even unbelievers recognized, often just intuitively. It was what Peter Berger called a plausibility structure, a plausibility structure, an assumption that everyone assumed it, everyone took it for granted. An alternative simply wasn't considered. An alternative wasn't even available conceptually for consideration. But the relentless apostasy spawned by the Enlightenment and Romanticism and existentialism and other ideologies has eaten away at this cosmology. This means we can no longer assume the culture that we once assumed. It means we must reinvigorate and make more explicit the cosmological gospel. Today we're called to preach the Christian cosmology. That is to say, to preach the gospel. Do you see now how this relates to what you're doing at Christian Concern? Every time you stand up for unborn children, you're standing up for the family and life. You're standing up for a life-giving gospel. Every time that you stand up against homosexuality and stand up for marriage, which God established, you're standing up for the Christian gospel, the good news, God's righteousness in the earth, accomplished by his son's atoning work. Now, to postmodern man, and I'm almost done and we'll take time for questions. To postmodern man, God says this, if you want to reconfigure my creational norms, if you want no accountability, if you want to redefine marriages between two men or two women or an additional number of them, if you want to conceive children in test tubes, if you want women other than biological mothers to carry children in their wombs, if you want men to be nurturers and women to be chivalrous, if you want all of these, God says as it will, go build your own universe. But as long as you're in my universe, you'll do things my way or suffer the bitter consequences. And this also answers that excellent question that Andrea asked last time about how we can avoid discouragement. Listen carefully to this. Because the universe is God's universe, this universe is God-rigged. It's God-rigged. Therefore, these plans for recreating the universe in man's image will inevitably and invariably fail. And the more spectacular they are, the more spectacularly they will fail. All of those who hate God love death, Proverbs 8.3 says. We need not worry, therefore, whether the grand universal recreation plans of apostate man will succeed. They will not succeed. We only need to worry how disastrous the fallout will be when they fail. Our task is to preach the cosmological gospel amid that failure, looking forward to triumph in time and history, and final triumph and full triumph at the coming of the Lord. So the message of Christian concern is the gospel message. Do it God's way and be redeemed and restored. Redeemed and restored not just as individuals, but also as a culture. 
When you support life, when you oppose abortion and assisted suicide, you're preaching the cosmological gospel. When you cultivate the family and assault gender bending and same-sex marriage, you're proclaiming the cosmological gospel. Did you know that I believe on Facebook now there's a possibility of identifying oneself as one of 51 separate genders? 51. I'm thinking, though, given that premise, that's too few. Because think about it. If you get to define your own gender, frankly, the number of possible genders should be the same as the number of the population of the entire world, right? I mean, shouldn't every person have the right to define? Why limit it to 51? What bigots those guys at Facebook are. Limiting people's right to determine their gender to only 51? Remarkable. But how about genotypes that you can do? What's that? Oh, you can define anyone now. Okay, so maybe, that is, that's right. So possibly more are on the way. When you hear a Christian concern foster Trinitarian Christianity and subvert Islam, you're declaring the cosmological gospel. The gospel is a cosmology. The gospel is God's way for the world. You understand that? It's God's way for the world. Let's not think that task that you have Let's not think the task in which Andrea is leading you is too radical. I'd like to finish up with an arresting quote by the rate, a great Christian Dutch philosopher who understood these truths, Herman Duiveerd. How many of you have read any books by Herman Duiveerd, the Dutch? Yes. Listen to, this is in his book, um, uh, The Roots of Western Culture, one of his fine books. He said, consider the cost of taking radical scriptural Christianity seriously. Ask yourself which side you must join in this tense spiritual battle of our times. Compromise is not an option. A middle-of-the-road stance is not possible. Either the ground motive of the Christian religion works radically in our lives, or we serve other gods. If this antithesis is too radical for you, ask yourself whether a less radical Christianity is not like the salt that has lost its savor. He says, I state the antithesis as radically as I do so that we may again experience the full, double-edged sharpness and power of God's Word. You must experience the antithesis as a spiritual storm that strikes lightning into your life and that clears the sultry air. If you do not experience it as a spiritual power requiring the surrender of your whole heart, then it will bear no fruit in your life. Then you will stand apart from the great battle that the antithesis always instigates. Powerful quote. Are there any questions? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. So yes. Tremendously encouraging. And, um, uh, I wonder if I could just uh, ask you to pick up a, a train of thought, a cluster of thought, really, first by the question that Andrea raised about, um, which really, it seems to me, is a, is a question about a Christian philosophy of history. Sort of, how, how did we get to this mess, and what do we do next to get out of it? Can you comment on the, the fact that um, many times in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, a righteous king would come along and find his nation in turmoil in relation to the outside world, despised and hated by the nations, um, in relation within the community, uh, hostility towards the weak and, and so on. And the first thing he would do would be to rebuild the temple, uh, conduct a Passover, instigate religious reforms, break down the monkey lines up in Dan or Bishiba or wherever they were. In other yeah. words, um, it seems that there are 
what one might say, different zones of human life and different kinds of relationships. The relationship we have with God in worship, then in the community with brothers and sisters in the people of God, and then in the outside world. And if you want to fix the third, which we do, then one must first fix the second, and in order to do, to do that, fix the first. Is there a sense, then, in which the church's place in what you're describing includes, though it's not limited to, includes um, a reformation in its worship so that God is honoured in the sanctuary, so to speak, on the Lord's day, as he is not in many churches today? Yeah, very good question. I've given a lot of thought to that, as you might imagine. I would say the short answer is yes, but you want more than that. You want an elaboration. So I would say with respect to reformation of worship, it's essential. But I, and I might disagree with some specific church traditions on this, I'm not entirely convinced that some of the specific worship requirements of some specific churches, whether Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist, are so clearly taught in the Bible that it's necessary to maintain a particular kind of Sabbatarianism, a particular sequence of worship. Uh, but I certainly, I would go, certainly go so far as to say a casual idea toward worship, a casual idea toward the Lord's Day, uh, not uh, having almost no stress on the importance of the authoritative preaching of the Word of God, of sort of diminishing the sacraments or ordinances, though they're sort of, well, we'll just have them once a year or maybe never. And um, the, the diminution of church music, the sort of destruction of church architecture. We could go on and on. Yes, I agree that that is absolutely essential. And as long as Christians have the idea that their worship is something that's secondary, the, the attempt to, um, to restore a Christian culture apart from the worship of the true God is wrongheaded. Then, I think, we would fall into the trap of simply a lot of political conservatives whose view is, well, if we just get so-and-so elected and have free markets and get rid of abortion, everything will be fine. But no, we're actually Christians. Yeah. And we're Christian conservatives because we're Christians. Now, frankly, all of us here are believers, certainly profess to be. If I believe in sola scriptura, everybody here believes in the Bible. If the Bible taught liberalism, I would be a liberal. But the Bible doesn't teach liberalism. But the issue is the Bible. It's not a political viewpoint. It's the Bible. And the reason that I am politically conservative is because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I don't mean all conservatives are right. Many of them are dumb. But what generally goes for political conservatism um, great, strong individual liberty, strong mediating institutions like the family, strong emphasis on life, uh, free markets. I, that's generally in line with the Word of God. But the important thing is the Bible. But yes, you're exactly right that reformation of worship is essential. Yes, sir? It, it strikes me in that context, then, and back to the, the frustration that sometimes we feel with our evangelical brothers and sisters in this country. There's a double tragedy. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, um, in some respects, uh, there's a failure to grasp the significance of our mission to the world yes. in the kinds of way that uh, TT and um, LPF and God are, are trying to body. On the other hand, to the extent that there's any mission to the world uh, in view, it's seen as something which actually displaces the worship of the trying God from Sunday worship. Yes. And so worship becomes a very evangelistic shock problem. Yes. And it turns into it is an irony, problem. isn't it? It's and almost then, amusing, almost. Right. Yes. And you think, well, you, you kind of cut the threads at both sides. Right, right. Doubly bad. Right. Yes, no, that's correct. That's a good way to put it. 
So true. This gentleman, and then, yes, sir. similar approach to thinking that we might see in other, some other evangelical circles of um, because there's such crisis, because things are so lost, what we need to focus on is preaching the gospel, how it defines, building up the church, and then at some stage in the future we'll be ready to engage with the world.